0: Heavenly Father, God of creation, Lord of heaven and earth, you are holy and mighty. We have just sung to praise you in all your glory and majesty. You have always been and forever will be. And we thank you for your mercy, your grace, your love, a love that never changes, never fails, never ends. And when our sin was great, your love was greater. And your son, Jesus, demonstrated that amazing, redeeming love through his life and death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your spirit who helps us understand your truth and the mysteries of who you are, how you work, and who unites us as we gather. So we come right now to center our hearts and minds on you and your word. Lord, we lift up people living in places around the world that are marked by conflict, danger, oppression, persecution, and we pray for your grace and peace. We ask for help and comfort for those who are suffering. Lord, we pray for justice, compassion, healing. May your truth, your hope light the darkness. We give thanks for the many people in our community who provide for our daily needs, for their service that provides food, repairs, deliveries, education, healthcare, church service. We pray for all those who are taking care of others during this pandemic. We give thanks for them and pray for their safety and well being. Father, please be with our children and youth and college students. We thank you for them. May they see you and your care for them during these times of change and uncertainty. It's been hard this first week going back to school. And we ask that they would um, know that you are with them. You are always for them. And we pray for their protection. We pray for joy and friendship, for meaningful learning. May their relationship with you deepen and grow. We pray for their parents and their families to love and surround them and reassure them. We thank you for teachers and school staff who faithfully show up each day to care for students. We pray for their protection and strength. We pray for support for them. And Father, we lift up those in our church family who are hurting or struggling, for those who may feel lost or alone, We pray for comfort, for healing, and for your peace. May your light and love surround them. May we all reflect your light and love to all who are with us, so that we might bring um, reconciliation and restoration and hope and joy, Father, even in the midst of hard times, Lord, may we be filled with you, your spirit, Thank you for Eugene and his family, and we ask that you be with him as he brings us your word this morning. And we pray that it would light us, light our way, light our path, and transform us to live and love like your son, Jesus. It's in him's name we pray. Amen.
1: Good morning, brothers and sisters of PBCC. It's good to see you all. It was really wonderful to hear your voices as we had worship. You know, It's great to have the full band. It's great to have all these different kinds of instruments as well, of course, but it's also wonderful when we get a chance to just hear one another, amen? And it was particularly nice to hear about the perspectives class, to be reminded of that, and then to hear from our brother uh, sharing the, the creed just a moment ago. It's just really... Just so touching to me to be able to see a glimpse of what our Lord must see when he looks out at this world and sees what he is doing in it all across the globe, among all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and experience levels and all of that. And so it's just wonderful uh, to be able to share that with all of you this morning. Well, speaking of things to share with you, I do have a message to share with you. It's part two of our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. So we made it through week one, and now we're at week two. Last week, I started our sermon series with a lesson on gravity. And today, I'd like to share with you a real life example of its effect, and for reasons that will be clear in a moment, I won't be able to demonstrate this for you today, Um, but I'd like to show you some slides that I think will help us to wrap our minds around this idea of the gravity and the impact of Christ. Now I'm sure that many of you already know this, but here on this map of most of North and Central America, you can see a circle in hot pink, straddling the Caribbean Sea and the northwest tip of the Yucatan Peninsula. This is the site, in case you didn't know, this is the site of the Chicxulub crater. It is the largest second, I'm sorry, second largest crater of its kind in the entire world. The pink circle is a representation of the size of the crater. It's pretty much one to one in its current state. Now if we zoom in on Mexico, we can get an even better sense of its size. You see the pink circle there, that's still the crater, but that green blob in the center of Mexico is actually Mexico City, with a population of about nine million people. Just try and tuck that away, that factoid away for a moment as we zoom in even closer to the Yucatan Peninsula. In this close-up, we can see that the Chicxulub crater hangs over the edge of the peninsula most of the crater is actually underwater. Nevertheless, using a variety of tools and instruments and various techniques, scientists have been able to estimate the size of the crater at about 93 miles across. So, 93 miles in diameter, that's 150 kilometers for you metric folks. Uh, It would take a car moving at 60 miles an hour, about a, a little over an hour and a half, to drive from one side to the other uninterrupted. That's about the driving distance between Cupertino and Santa Rosa. Now there would be enough space in this 93 mile crater to fit at least 10 Mexico cities with all their people. That we're talking 90 million people or more living in this crater. And they'd be able to live there with ample room to spare. Now of course, craters are shaped like bowls. They aren't flat like a plate, they have depth. At this point in geological history, the crater has been filled with rock and soil and vegetation over the years, but studies have confirmed that if you dig down deep enough, you do find this bowl, this bowl shape underneath all of that. And at the lowest point in this bowl, at its lowest point, the Chicxulub Crater is about 12 miles deep, 12 miles. That's that's about 10 times the lowest depth of the Grand Canyon. So here, at the northwest tip of the Yucatan Peninsula, we have a 6,800 square mile bowl, 93 miles in diameter, 12 miles deep at its lowest point. What could have caused a crater this large? Well, brothers and sisters, craters are caused by impactors, impactors like asteroids. Whatever it was that caused this impact, and we'll just call it an asteroid this morning, it's theorized to have been at least seven miles across. Scientists estimate that when it crashed into the Earth's surface, it did so with the same force of anywhere from 21 billion to 921 billion Hiroshima atomic bombs. The impact would have been enough to send tsunami waves 100 meters or more ricocheting across the surface of the earth all around the world. The impact likely triggered volcanic eruptions all over the planet as the earth's crust absorbed the impact. And the impact would have launched a thick cloud of smoke and debris and dust, something that unfortunately we've become somewhat familiar with these past few summers, but it would have launched an even thicker cloud of all these things into the air, blocking out the sun's rays and leading to a nuclear winter for years afterward. Here's an artist's rendition of what the Yucatan Peninsula might have looked like in the decades after the impact, once the atmosphere cleared and vegetation slowly started returning to the area. And we can see today that vegetation did, in fact, return to the area, but the dinosaurs didn't. The dinosaurs did not survive the impact of this seven-mile asteroid, either here on the Yucatan Peninsula or anywhere else on planet Earth. Now, the point this morning is not to debate whether or not dinosaurs were real. (laughs) Whether the Earth is actually that old or was just created with the appearance of age. You know, the point this morning is that there is this crater on the Yucatan Peninsula and none of us were around to see how it was formed. None of us were there when it was created. But based on its dimensions, Looking at its size and its shape and the geological formations around it and underneath it, our best guess is that the crater was formed by something big, by something with weight, something with immense gravity. Whatever it was, it it left a mark because massive things make an impact. Massive things make an impact, they leave a mark, a mark that points to their reality in ways that are difficult if not impossible to deny. Last week we thought about the gravity of Christ and today we look at the impact that he makes on the lives of his people. What does it look like to be impacted by Christ? Well our passage Colossians 1, 3 to 8 is the first paragraph of the body of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it gives us a a clue into the shape of Christ's impact on our lives. It begins with this happy confession. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So it's always nice to hear that someone is praying for you. I I think so, at least. And it's even nicer, it's even nicer to hear that as they pray for you, that they are moved to give thanks to God. You know, you can only imagine how it would feel to hear the opposite, right? But it is also nice, it is also nice to hear specific reasons for that gratitude. What was worthy of Paul's celebration and gratitude to God the Father What had God the Father brought about in the lives of the Colossians that deserved recognition and celebration? Well, the answer is in verses four to 5a. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. For what was Paul grateful to God? Simply put, the Colossians faith, hope, and love. Now, some of us might recognize these three words, the faith, hope, and love, as a familiar triplet, especially among Paul's letters. Indeed, they and their synonyms occur frequently enough throughout Paul's Paul's letters to make them a recognizable Paulism, so to speak, the so-called Pauline triad. For example, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul recognized and celebrated the faith, hope, and love evident in their lives, just as he did regarding the Colossians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ some technical difficulties here there we go sorry about that later in the same letter we see faith hope and love appear together in Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians to persevere in their commitment to Christ 1 Thessalonians 5:8 but since we belong to the day let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation There are numerous other examples of the Pauline triad across his letters, sometimes with one of the three terms being only implied and at other times being expressed with different words, with synonyms. And so that raises the question, why why was Paul so fond of these three words? Well, because for Paul, these three words summarize the work of God the Father in the lives of his people through Jesus Christ. These three words represent the impact of Christ, in other words. These three words represent the impact of Christ just as we can measure the impact of an asteroid by taking the length and width and depth of the crater that it leaves behind, so faith, hope, and love are the dimensions of the impact Christ makes on all who come to believe in his gospel. Or to put it another way, for Paul, faith, hope, and love together are the primary evidence of genuine Christianity. What's more, their existence in the life of a believer, it outweighs all other expressions of spirituality and religiosity. They are greater evidence than spiritual gifts and powers, than religious habits and practices, than the loudest songs, than the most eloquent prayers, than the most impressive acts of giving and serving. This was one of Paul's main points in his first letter to the Corinthians where he spent a great deal of time in parchment and ink explaining to the superficial Corinthians that what truly mattered was not their spiritual gifts and religious exercises, but the presence of faith, hope, and love in their lives. A truth that Paul summarized in 1 Corinthians 13:13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three. Faith, hope, and love are the abiding dimensions of Christian life, both here in this life and in the life to come, though perhaps with some modification. These three abide. They will remain. They will continue long after the last prophecy has been uttered and the last tongue has been spoken, long after the last song has been sung and long after the last mountain has been moved, long after our own bodies have been swallowed up in death and renewed in resurrection glory. Faith, hope, and love in some way will define us for all eternity to come and so they define every genuine believer now. However imperfect and immature they might be this side of the second coming of Christ. But what are they really? What are faith, hope, and love? It would be easy to breeze past these three words as words that we use and perhaps even overuse sometimes in the church. So it behooves us to just stop and ask, what are they actually? And then to wonder, can we even adequately answer this question? How can we adequately define faith, hope, or love in the space of a single sermon or in a lifetime of sermons? Well, brothers and sisters, there are levels to understanding, even with such concepts as faith, hope, and love. We might not master these realities in our lifetimes, but we can learn enough to walk genuinely with Jesus. Sean's reminder to us some weeks ago concerning the Gospel of John, it really applies to all the truths of the Bible, don't they? They are deep enough for elephants to swim in, yet shallow enough, approachable enough, comprehensible enough, even for children to understand. And so we ask, how might we understand, first and foremost, faith? Back in my youth ministry days, I was a youth pastor for a time, back in my youth ministry days, I offered this definition for faith. Faith is believing God is who he says he is, and that he does what he says he does. And we live out that belief in the way we trust God. In other words, faith is depending on God, because of his track record, because of his proven trustworthiness. When we consider all the ways God has proven himself trustworthy, from his promises to Abraham, to the exodus from Egypt, to the conquest of the promised land, to the kingship of David, to the coming of Jesus Christ and to his resurrection from the dead, when we consider the resume of God's trustworthiness, we can see that we can depend on him to meet our needs, whatever they may be. We can depend on God to forgive our sins and redeem our pasts because of what he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do for us on the cross. And we can depend on God to redeem our suffering and to sustain us through it because that's what he did for Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. In a way, then, we can say that faith points to the past the resume of God's faithfulness in the past. If you've ever wondered why the Bible is so long, which is a question I've often thought about, if you've ever wondered why the Bible is so long, at least part of the answer to that question is this. It's long for our sake, for us to have plenty of material proof of God's trustworthiness. It's for us to look into the past to see what kind of God God has been. And in looking at the past and seeing God's proven character, the Christian grows in confidence in God and continued dependence on God. As one of my professors, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Scott Haefman, put it in his book, The God of Promise and the Life of Faith, he said, faith is not believing the unbelievable, but trusting in God's word because of what one has come to know of God's character. Faith is trusting God to do what He has promised because we are convinced by His provisions that God is both willing and able to keep His word. Now, if faith is depending on God because of His track record of trustworthiness, then hope is simply faith anticipating His continued trustworthiness into the future. Here's the definition for hope that I gave to my middle schoolers hope is faith looking forward. That's it. God's revelation to us includes his promises for the future, promises that are already being fulfilled in part, but will be completely fulfilled when Christ returns. God has promised to send Christ again to complete his purposes for this world, to defeat his enemies, to vindicate his people, to execute justice, to put an end to the brokenness of this world and to create a new heavens and earth and to establish in that new creation an eternal kingdom where God's people will live forever in his presence, happy and content and without any fear or crying or grieving anymore. Hope is faith-believing in these promises for the future. Once again, Dr. Scott Hafman, hope in God's promises is not a wishful longing, but a faith-filled confidence for the future. To know God is to trust him, and to trust God is to trust his promises, and to trust God's promises is to be sure of their fulfillment. This assurance concerning the future, anchored in God's promises, is what the Bible calls hope. Between faith and hope, then, the Christian's past and their future are covered. Faith looks to how God has secured their past, and this leads to hope, which looks to how God has secured their future. We no longer have to spend our time and energy and thought space trying to escape our past guilt and shame. No, we no longer have to spend our resources and relationships and opportunities trying to guarantee our happy future. Instead, We can use everything we have, not only on ourselves, but also on other people, on the people around us, on the people we call our brothers and sisters, on people who might become our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is the definition for love that I gave to my middle schoolers. Love is meeting the needs of others. Love is meeting the needs of others out of the abundance we gain, when we entrust our needs to the sufficiency of God. This kind of love, it goes beyond fuzzy feelings, and it goes to actions and truth. This kind of love escapes the pull of codependency because it is looking for nothing in return. This kind of love needs nothing from the people being loved because in faith and in hope, it has already found all it needs in God. Once again, finally, for the last time, Dr. Scott Hafman. Depending on God to meet our needs sets us free to meet the needs of others, loving our neighbors. Faith and hope liberate us from self-centeredness so that we can actually obey the command to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is why at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul declared that though faith, hope, and love abide, these three, the greatest of these is love. Love. Though faith, hope, and love are each part of the impact of Christ in the life of the believer, love is the fullest and clearest evidence of Christ alive in our hearts, and why? Because love is the fullest and clearest expression of faith and hope. Now the way that I illustrated this for my middle schoolers was with a hamburger, and I didn't put up a picture here, sorry about that, but if you can just imagine a hamburger in your mind right now. Maybe you don't eat meat, but you know, go along with this, okay? Right? Imagine a hamburger in your mind. Imagine that you have just bought this hamburger with the last few dollars that you had left in your wallet. And you've been hungry all morning. It's lunchtime now. You're ready to dig into this hamburger. And just as you're about to plunge that hamburger, dollar menu, whatever it is, you know, just as you're about to plunge it into your mouth, your friend comes running out of nowhere, shouting your name and telling you to stop. As they get to you, they knock that hamburger out of your hand, and they tell you, hold on a second. I just bought the best piece of beef that you can imagine. It's incredibly well marbled, it's beautiful, it was expensive, but I bought it, and I bought it because I wanted to share with you the best steak of your life. It's not ready yet, just got a couple more hours to go, but if you just wait a little bit, you'll be able to feast with me on the best piece of beef you've ever had. Now, let's say that you have a history with this person. You have a history with this friend, and you've seen this friend prepare steaks for other people. You've tasted a little bit of their steak before, and you know, wow, this guy or girl you know, is an amazing chef. They really know their way around a piece of steak. And so, you look at your hamburger, and you look at your steak, and you think, I think I can wait. I can hold off on this hamburger so that my appetite won't be ruined for this steak, let's say the next moment someone comes up to you and they don't even have a dollar for a dollar menu burger. They've got nothing in their pockets. And you can see that they have had nothing in their stomachs for some time. When they come up and ask you, hey, are you gonna eat that hamburger? How easy is it to give away that hamburger knowing that the steak is coming? This is faith, hope, and love at work, brothers and sisters. Faith is looking at your friend's history and knowing that they make an amazing steak. Hope is anticipating, drooling over the steak to come in a couple hours. And love is looking at this person who doesn't have a steak in their life and giving them a hamburger. Simple middle school illustration, but it still gets me every time. still gets me as a lover of hamburgers. This is faith, hope, and love, brothers and sisters, and you can see how love is the fullest expression of the faith and the hope that preceded it. But of course, faith, hope, and love also reinforce one another. Our love for others reminds us of the love that God has for us, which stirs up our faith, and reflecting on our hope for the future encourages us to hold on to our faith even in times of suffering. And when we see the love in our lives growing more and more Christ-like, our confidence that God will fulfill our hope and bring us all the way home, it only deepens. And so faith, hope, and love, they feed one another, filling out the dimensions of Christ's impact on our lives. And it was this impact that Paul had heard about concerning the Colossian believers. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The Colossian believers had begun entrusting themselves to Christ Jesus, depending on God through Jesus Christ. And in this faith, they looked forward to the promises that awaited them in heaven. And because of this hope for the life to come, they were able to demonstrate genuine and generous love, especially for their brothers and sisters in God's family. Christ's impact among the Colossian believers could be seen then in their faith and their hope and their love and this impact began when God the Father sent someone to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to the people of Colossae. Paul reminded the Colossians of this in Colossians 1, 5-6. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. The Colossians heard the truth and the promises of God through the preaching of the gospel when it arrived in Colossae and by the grace of God the Father, through the secret work of the Holy Spirit, they heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The Colossians did not merely understand the content of the gospel in a merely intellectual sense. They did not merely comprehend its propositions. They heard it and they understood the grace of God in truth. They saw in the gospel of Jesus Christ the grace of God. They gazed into his glory. They received his fullness. They embraced him wholly, and they embraced him until his truth became their truth, the truth at the very center, at the very bottom of who they were. And like an asteroid transforming the landscape, So the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ left an impact on the Colossians. Christ made his impact on the Colossians and it was one that could be measured in faith, hope, and love. And Paul affirmed that this is This was what was happening, not only among the Colossians, but throughout the known world, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ was being preached and the impact of Christ was being felt. Verses five and six, again, in the center there you see, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. This language of bearing fruit and increasing is a clear allusion to Genesis 128, where God commissioned the first humans, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Humankind was created to reflect God's glory throughout the world as they filled themselves up with his abundant Edenic provision. We were created, brothers and sisters, in other words, to depend on God and to hope in God and to love others out of our faith and our hope. And Paul's point in verse six was that through the gospel, this was finally happening. The commission to be fruitful and to multiply, to to bear fruit and to increase was finally being fulfilled, but this was fruitfulness and increase was not being achieved primarily through childbearing. It was happening through another commission, the great commission of Jesus Christ. Matthew 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Christ speaking. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The fruitfulness and increase Christ commissioned and the Colossians experienced and Paul witnessed was not achieved via sexual reproduction, but through the gospel. Through spirit-empowered transformation, the Great Commission is about faith, hope, and love growing and increasing in the lives of God's people as they feel the impact of Christ in their lives. The Colossians were products of the Great Commission, as carried out by a believer named Epaphras, Colossians 1, 7, and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Epaphras had carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Colossians and he had come to Paul to tell him about the impact Christ had had on the Colossians. And for Paul, this impact was worthy of celebration. You see, brothers and sisters, faith in Christ Hope in his promises, self-denying love for others. These do not form naturally in the hearts of broken, sinful human beings. Maybe when it comes to hamburgers, sure. But not when it comes to God. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we learn, no matter how much we do of our own strength, we cannot Overcome the sinful tendencies in our hearts to doubt God and to be suspicious of his promises and to live self-centered lives concerned primarily with our own survival or comfort if we can afford it. Just as 12-mile-deep craters do not form naturally without some sort of cosmic collision taking place, so the human heart does not simply generate faith in God, hope in his promises and selfless love for others, unless unless it is acted upon by something, by someone of greater glory. Unless someone of greater glory, of, of greater mass, of greater weight and substance and power and authority, unless someone greater than us acts upon us, pulls the pieces of our hearts back together and bends and reshapes them into his image, Faith, hope, and love are impossible. This is why Paul couldn't help but thank God when he saw the Colossians growing in faith, hope, and love. These things can only be made by God, by Christ, by the Spirit, not by our strength or ability. And that's why it's worthy to give thanks to God for. And this is also why it is tempting for us to look for other ways of measuring the impact of Christ on our lives. Like every generation of Christians before us, we are tempted to measure the impact of Christ in ways beside spirit-wrought faith, hope, and love. For example, we are tempted to measure the impact of Christ instead by the number of people showing up to our church or the number of people over whom we can exert some kind of influence for the kingdom by the number of times we go to church in a year, or a month, or a week, by the number of minutes we spend reading the Bible or praying, by the number of times we do these activities throughout the week, by the number of Christian books we've read, and by the number of facts about the Bible we have stored in our heads by the number of mission trips we've gone on or the number of retreats we've attended or, or, or led even, or even the number of times we've gone to the altar at the call to, to dedicate our lives to Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, of course, none of these things that I mentioned are bad things. Not at all. Quite the contrary, we need to do all the things that I've just mentioned. We need to dedicate our lives to Christ. We need to read his word and whatever other materials that help us understand it. We need to meet together and pray together and do service together and worship together and we need to bring others into these walls and to connect with the people of the South Bay, by the people of Cupertino and San Jose and Santa Clara and wherever else we call our neighborhoods. But it is frighteningly easy, isn't it, to take these things which are meant to put us in a position to grow in faith, hope, and love, and to try to use them to replace genuine faith, hope, and love. The spiritual disciplines God has given to us and instructed us to use were always intended to create spaces for us to encounter God to let his glory collide with the hardened parts of our hearts and to allow Christ to grow in us faith, hope, and love. But it is so tempting to use the spiritual disciplines and activities, things we feel that we can control and execute and optimize, to to use these things as replacements for faith, hope, and love. And not just the spiritual disciplines, but other things as well. It's tempting to confuse the culture surrounding Christianity with Christianity itself. It is tempting to make Christianity be about political influence, as if the way someone voted was surefire evidence for the genuineness of their devotion to Christ. It is tempting to make Christianity be about health and wealth, as if the relative ease and comfort that someone experiences in life guarantees their closeness to God. It's even tempting. It's even tempting to make Christianity be about what someone wears to church, about how close or how far from the front they sit, whether they lift their hands and praise or shout amen during the sermon. I didn't catch any of you, by the way. <laughs> and it's particularly tempting to replace genuine faith, hope, and love with these things when we have them. When we have the numbers, when we have the influence, when we have the habits, when we have the routines, when we have the votes, when we have the health and the wealth and the clothes and the Christianese, it's easy to feel like we're doing something right, isn't it? Like we figured this Christianity thing out. It's easy to feel good and confident about ourselves when we attain our standards and meet our expectations and fulfill our definitions, middle school or not, of Christianity, of the life impacted by Christ. And that only makes it harder to let go of these false Christianities. But the Apostle Paul, he knew the genuine article when he saw it. He knew what to look for when it came to the impact of Christ. You know, those researchers who originally discovered the Chicxulub Crater, they did not identify it based on the appearance of the land. I mean, they didn't look out of the window of an airplane and say, oh look, a giant bowl. No, the, the researchers discovered the crater by searching for gravitational anomalies in the area. They were actually looking for oil. They're looking for pockets of fluid underneath the rocky surface. They're looking for gravitational anomalies in the area, places where there was an unexpected change in the density and the matter, the substance of the earth, and where everyone else saw nothing more than rainforest and ocean. The researchers discovered a circular rim of gravitational anomalies, clear evidence that something of great gravity had made its impact on the peninsula. In the same way, Paul knew what to look for when it came to the impact of Christ. Faith, hope, and love. And these he found in the Colossian believers. I mean, they weren't perfect, but the growth was real. The impact of Christ on their lives was unmistakable. So brothers and sisters, we have to ask ourselves, what do we use, what do we use to measure the impact of Christ in our lives, or even in the lives of others? What do we use to define the Christian experience, the Christian life? Are we distracted by numbers and rituals, by head knowledge, alone, by traditions that we perpetuate for their own sake, or or are we able to see past those things, to place them in their proper places, to use them, Properly, not not to replace, but to support faith in Christ and hope in His promises and selfless love for others. And, brothers and sisters, when we do see past these secondary things and look at ourselves, do we see faith, hope, and love growing in our hearts and shaping our lives? Do we see ourselves depending on God in more and more parts of our lives and more areas of our concern? Do we see ourselves liberated from insecurity and guilt and shame because of what we trust Christ to have done for us? Do we see ourselves liberated from uncertainty about the future, growing in hopeful anticipation for the promises Christ will fulfill for us soon and very soon? And is our security and assurance in Christ liberating us to love others selflessly and sacrificially in conformity to Christ himself? Please allow me to close the sermon with an an illustration from Paul Washer, a pastor who delivered this, this illustration at a youth conference nearly two decades ago. It's nonetheless relevant today. Let's imagine that I show up late to the service, and I run up here onto the stage, and all the leaders are angry with me and say, Eugene, don't you appreciate the fact that you've been given an opportunity to speak here, and you come late? And I'd say, well, brothers and sisters, you, you just have to forgive me, you have to forgive me. Well, why? Well, you see, I was out here on Lawrence Expressway, And as I was driving, the the sky above me turned impossibly bright, brighter than lightning, and and I felt the air around me getting hotter and hotter until the air itself began to burn. And I heard a sound, like 100,000 freight trains headed straight for me, and then I saw it. An asteroid, seven miles across, and bam, it just, it landed right on me, guys. It crushed my car to pieces. My insurance is calling it a total loss. (laughs) That's why I'm late. I got hit by an asteroid. Now there would only be two logical conclusions. One, I'm a liar. (laughs) Or two, I'm a madman. You would say, Eugene, it's absolutely absurd. It is impossible, Eugene, to have an encounter with something as large as a seven-mile asteroid and not be changed. And then my question would be to you, brothers and sisters of PBCC, what is larger, an asteroid or God? Where do we see the impact of Christ in our lives? And what shape does that impact take Does it strike us and impact us on the superficial level of our day-to-day routines? Or does it go deeper, 12 miles deep to the bottom of our hearts, leaving behind faith and hope and love? As with last week, I I asked these questions not to accuse anyone of anything. I asked them for the sake of self-reflection and self-assessment. That's really where the beginning of this letter takes us, to a place of self-understanding. God has loved us faithfully and generously, and I have no doubt that He moves us to ask these questions of ourselves out of that same unchanging love. But the Word of God does confront us gently and compassionately because it would have more of us, brothers and sisters. Because God would have all of us re centered and rebuilt around His glory. If we want to be rebuilt, we need to know what we're working with, where we stand, who we are. And so in the voice of love, we ask ourselves, what does the impact of Christ look like in my life? And as we end this sermon, I'd like to invite our brother and sister back up to the stage. In preparation of coming to the table of our Lord, As we hold these questions in our hearts, I I want to encourage you to focus on a specific aspect of the elements that we're taking today. A specific aspect of the bread and the cup that you have, that you've collected from the front, that we have right here. And I want you to note, I want you to think about specifically how they have been already prepared for you. You did not bake this bread, and you did not make this juice, You did not cut the bread into little pieces and put them in their wrapper and attach them to a disposable cup either. These were all waiting for you when you came in. They were prepared for you, ready for you to consume, ready for all of us to consume together. In the same way we do not create for ourselves faith, hope, and love, this is something that only God can do for us. And in Christ, as we abide in his love and as we sit at his table, both literally and figuratively, he does his work, brothers and sisters. He makes his impact. And as we will see in coming weeks, God willing, it is this that changes us, seeing and knowing the glory of God. One of our members uh, just this, this past week messaged me in response to last Sunday's sermon and they wrote, I think for me it's not as much about bending myself to Christ as it sometimes feels like I need to allow myself to be bent and shaped by the Spirit. This is exactly right. This is exactly where we're going. And this is exactly the purpose of the Lord's Supper and really of every spiritual exercise we do as Christians. So before we eat and before we drink together, let's take a moment in prayer to reflect and to ask these questions of ourselves, and to ask God to do what we cannot do, to grow us in faith, hope, and love. Well, brothers and sisters, if you would like to receive prayer, um, we'll be at the front to receive you. So receive now this benediction as we close our service together. As you leave this place, as you leave this service, as you go out into your weeks with all the various pressures and concerns, issues, difficulties, as well as joys and exciting discoveries that you will encounter. May God grow you in faith in Christ and hope in the promises laid up for you in heaven and of the love which signifies both in meeting the needs of others out of God's own sufficiency. Be blessed and be well, brothers and sisters.